Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. Verse 37 and 38. Acts 2, 37 and 38. What do you feel guilty about? Don't tell me. It's interesting how oftentimes you can look at someone's life and their life, the path they take in life is often determined by what they do and what they do not feel guilty about. What does God have to say about guilt? Does he want us to live, to live under a, a load of guilt? Is he a heavenly father that always has a disapproving look on his face? As if we never can never do enough. Is there a way to ever become clean? Acts 2.37 says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Pricked in their heart means they They felt guilty. Specifically, they felt convicted by the Holy Spirit, convinced of their guilt, convinced of the truth of what Peter had explained in the preceding verses. But there was pain pricked in their heart means that they experienced the pain of guilt in their conscience. Verse 38, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission. That word means forgiveness for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for this promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Word untoward means crooked or rebellious. Verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them, about 3,000 souls. The role of guilt and forgiveness or God's grace and our guilt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. So many live under the crushing load of guilt. We don't know what to do with it. Any attempt we as human beings make at trying to deal with it is unsuccessful. Please help me as I preach. Help this truth to be clear. Help us to live under the truth of your forgiveness and grace. We thank you for your kindness. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Guilt and shame 
are some of the greatest themes of society today, it seems. We as human beings are sensitive to it. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were in the, our cell phone provider uh, office trying to work out some details of all that fun stuff. You always go in thinking, oh, this, this shouldn't take long. Honestly, I think, it's, I think it's faster to buy a car than it is to upgrade your phone anymore. And you walk in and there's a person standing there and they're like, now look, if you work at one of these places, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to hate on you right now, but I'm venting a little, okay, let's, let's, let's this deal. You walk in and they're like, oh, I hear, you, I hear your question. Let me call somebody. We were talking to the, the nice young lady behind the counter and, you know, just making small, small, small talk while we were working through the details. And we told her, you know, we, you know, we run a church. It's just right up the street. And uh, we'd love to invite you. And her name was, was a, she's an African young lady. And, and her name was a Bible name. I can't remember exactly what it was. But it was a Bible name. And I'm like, oh, that's a beautiful name. That's in the Bible. It was a little bit of an unusual name, but it was a Bible name. Oh, yeah, I know. My family's always gone to church. And I, I'm a believer. And I believe in Christ. And, and, you know, and I've recently come to Canada. And, and I said, oh, have you found a church to go to? And she, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I know. But I don't always go, you know, as much as I, as much as I should. And so then she turned to her coworker and said, hey, you should, you should come to church, too. You could tell this young man was not a churchgoer, may or may not have believed in God. And he said something to the effect of, oh, you know, it's your clients, meaning us, that are making you feel guilty. We don't, you know, kind of making it sound as if, you know, we, we unbelievers don't make people feel guilty. And it's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a common theme I've heard sometimes in the city where it's like, oh, religion makes people feel guilty. And those of us who choose to be non-religious are the ones who, you know, we live guilt-free. But that's not really true either, is it? Guilt. Consider a story from the past. Famous author Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, held a wide range of views on Christianity and the Bible at different times in his life. His theological beliefs changed many times as he dealt with the tragic deaths of family and friends as well as considerations of his own mortality. His misconceptions of sin and guilt may have contributed to his rejection of the gospel. In his book, Huck Finn's America, Mark Twain in the era that shaped his masterpiece, Butler University's Andrew Levy wrote about Twain's faith. Speaking of Mark Twain, he spent his Sundays in a church where the preachers were very clear about hell and the odds of a wayward child going there, he wept to his mother that he had, quote, ceased to be a Christian, but his, quote, trained Presbyterian conscience, as he later called it, swallowed guilt like air. It was said there was no death in his family or among his friends he did not blame himself for. I took all the tragedies to myself. I tallied them off in turn as they happened, saying to myself in each case with a sigh, another one gone on my account. Later, there would be no economic or social injustice in which he regarded 
his hands as clean. Now that's from many generations ago in the United States. Another article in the New York Times, this one was written in 2017, speaking of our day and age in regards to guilt. The title, the title of, the, of the article is called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. It says this, in a recent New York Times article, columnist David Brooks argues, religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. To make his point, Brooks quotes from a brilliant essay by Wilfred McClay called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Brooks writes, Technology gives us power, and power entails responsibility, and responsibility, McClay notes, leads to guilt. You and I see a picture of a starving child in Sudan, and we know inwardly that we're not doing enough. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the route. He says, we're still shaped by religious categories and the need to feel morally justified. And yet here's the problem that Brooks identifies and that the gospel addresses. And yet we have no clear framework outside of Christ or a set of rituals, he says, to guide us in our quest of goodness. Worse, people have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There is sin, but no formula for redemption. Many people live in either the story that Mark Twain talks about where they have a background of religion, but it just seems to pile on the guilt. And then if they exit religion, they walk into a secular space that seeks to essentially do the same thing. What does God say? By the way, you can trace these feelings of guilt in some cases to people's feelings of depression. Where's the freedom? I remember, you may be old enough to remember this too. You guys remember when these things came out? Back in the day, what did we used to have? Chalkboards. They were never clean, seems like. And they came out with these, these whiteboards. And I remember, I'm like, all right, well, give me a marker. Oh, no, no, but you gotta be really careful, right? Because back in the day, the only kind of markers available, the most widely available markers, if you were just going randomly pick up a marker, what kind would it be? Permanent. And I'm telling you what, if you were the guy in the classroom or the guy in the church that accidentally picked up a permanent marker and started writing, oh no, oh no, and you're trying to, does it, does it work if you try to rub it off with your thumb? Does anything really work? Oh, well, maybe they've come out with some kind of solution nowadays. But back in the day, you were in, you were in big trouble. But see this, I just found this in the room somewhere. I don't know. 
Chess class is over in Harvey room, I think. I don't know if it's going on right now or sometime this week. But this is, this is dry erase. It doesn't erase very well. It's been on there a little long. So you can kind of just kind of mush it off a little, right? You say, well, if you had a real eraser, it's a lot like guilt. You try to get it off. Sometimes it just seems, kind of, seems to kind of just wipe right off. And other times it seems like this is never going to go away. Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching the sermon on Pentecost. And he's telling a crowd of Jews. Now it speaks here of men, but in this culture, typically when they counted people, it was just the men. Now that's not a reflection of what our values should be. That's just a description of, of history and culture from back 2,000 years ago. So 3,000 got saved here. But there was a big group of people. And these were the ones that had cried out 50 days before, crucify him, crucify him about Jesus Christ. It was not uncommon for someone to be crucified in those days in the Roman Empire. It wasn't uncommon to be in the part of a crowd that was screaming something at somebody in those days. What was uncommon was for someone to come back later and identify, this is the only time this has happened in history, that person that you cried out, crucify him, crucify him, was in fact the Messiah, the very Son of God. And he has proved that to us by showing himself alive for 40 days. You see, when they crucified him on the cross, he was completely 100% dead. And they laid his body in a tomb. But three days later, he rose from the dead and, excuse me, showed himself alive. The Bible records in 1 Corinthians 15, it says in verse number three, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas. It's, listen, it wasn't just the fact that the tomb was empty because someone could possibly have stolen his body. That is a possibility. It wasn't just the tomb is empty. It's the fact that he was seen alive by many people over a period of 40 days. It wasn't just a little rumor that fluttered through the believers, and they chose to believe that he was alive. No, no, he showed himself alive. There's a difference. He was buried. They watched him be buried. There was a, a Roman guard placed in front of the tomb that if, if, if it was disturbed in any way, it would be upon uh, penalty of death. For, for someone to have disturbed the tomb. So his body was placed in the tomb, but on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. We looked at some of those Old Testament scriptures in Psalm 16 last week. Verse five says, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the 12, 
Verse 6 says, and after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. There is more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and for the authenticity of the scriptures than any other historical document. Amen. Amen. He was seen of above 500 brethren at once. And then he goes on to say in verse number six, of whom of those 500, the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen to sleep. It's almost as, as meaning they passed away, they're dead. The apostle Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 15 here, go and talk to these people. Don't just take my word for it, he's saying. There's a collection of hundreds of witnesses many of whom are still alive. Why would he say that? Because he doesn't want anybody to doubt the fact that Christ is who he said he was, that he died according to the scriptures, but he died for our sins according to the scriptures. It's not just the fact that he died. He died for a specific purpose, and that purpose was he took upon himself our sins. We have the verse here. And we mentioned this before we sang one of our songs. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We know what it's like to go to a restaurant and to receive a surprise from our friend who says, No, 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 I'll pay, I'll pay, I've got this. We're like, oh, you know, we always pretend. Oh, are you sure? Okay. Are you sure? You know, we've got to try at least two or three times. Are you sure? Are you sure? You know, take out the wallet. Oh, you know, I'm just, oh, my, mm, you're just, you're such a good friend. You're like, thank God. I didn't have that much anyway. Right? We, we owed a sin debt that we could not pay. It wasn't that we had some way to pay our sin debt before God and receive the forgiveness of our sin and therefore be wiped clean of our guilt. It was impossible. Listen, in our own power, our sin and guilt was written in permanent marker. It was written in permanent marker. Nothing could be done. Jesus said, I will go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We know that verse, the verse goes on to say, in John chapter 3. Let me flip to it real quick. John 3.16 is what I quoted. Many of us know that verse. But it goes on to say, For God sent not his, work, his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Listen, God does not come. He did not send Jesus into the world to make us feel guilty. He did not he did not come to condemn the world. We were already condemned. We were already guilty, my friends. Those who had crucified Christ with their cries of crucify him, crucify him, were already guilty. And Peter, by preaching the Old Testament scriptures and the word of God by power of the Holy Spirit, was simply able to show them their guilt. 
It wasn't to heap guilt on someone who did not deserve it. Some people try to do that to us. You may have a friend or a family member or someone from your past, and they want to make you feel guilty for things that just simply aren't true. They simply don't want, or they, 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 they're trying to manipulate you. They've got a reason why, perhaps. And they aren't things you've actually done. And it seems like that no matter how many times you say that you're sorry, no matter how many times you ask for their forgiveness, they always have that guilt in their back pocket that they're willing to take out and dangle in front of you and say, you remember when? Whether it's true or whether it's completely fictitious and completely made up. Guilt is a powerful tool. But we have to understand that there is a righteous guilt that exists in this world. You see, when God talks about guilt, he doesn't talk about it as if it's permanent. Through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, it changes from a permanent marker to now one that is erasable. If we say, God, I cannot erase my sin and my guilt and my shame. I'm looking to you and what Jesus did for me on the cross. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is when God comes and with his power and with his love through what Jesus Christ did for us in the sacrifice of himself, because he then took that sin upon himself and he died for that sin. And therefore he can then give us his forgiveness. When we come to God with guilt, God does not perpetually make us feel guilty about something. Let me say that again, my friends. When we come to God with our guilt, he does not perpetually make us feel guilty for something that we've done. He intends for us to come to him, not to condemn us and to live under this feeling of condemnation and guilt and shame, and it's like, oh my goodness, I've, I've ran up this huge bill at the restaurant, and I just, it's, it's so much more than I can possibly pay, but I'm going to try to go to church, and I'm going to try to be baptized. I'm going to try to be a better person. He doesn't intend for us to do it in our own power because it can't be done in our own power. He intends for us to come to him and admit our helplessness. We have to admit our need. We cannot experience forgiveness if we do not repent. We cannot repent if we do not feel guilt and shame. Let me say that again. We cannot experience forgiveness if we do not repent. Repent means to turn, have a change of mind. They heard the sermon of Peter and they felt the guilt and the shame of what they've done. You got us, absolutely. You're talking about me. You're, you're right, I'm guilty. And because they felt the guilt, the compunction, the conviction, yes, I'm guilty. What shall we do? What did he say? Repent, turn, trust Christ. Listen, you must trust the very one whom you crucified. No one forced Jesus to go to the cross. He chose to. He saw your guilt and your shame. And he said, I will, I will, 
I will wear that shame for you. We'll listen to a few beautiful, beautiful verses about what Jesus did for us. Isaiah 50 and verse number six is a prophecy concerning what Jesus did for us. Isaiah 50 and verse number six. He said, I gave my back to the smiters. I gave my back to the ones that would hit, to the ones that were going to scourge. I, I gave myself, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. Now in, in Jewish culture, to have a beard as a man was a representation that you were a full grown man. That was your, like a, an expression of manhood. So when they were ripping out his beard, they were, they were actively in a cultural sense, humiliating him. You're not even a real man. Has anybody ever made you feel that way? You're not a real woman. You're not a real man. Let me, let me tell you something. You don't have to wear that shame and guilt because Jesus took that for you. Amen. By his stripes, we are healed. You don't have to wear that, my friend. Has anybody ever made you feel less than? Now listen, the cross is not therapy. But the cross is therapy. The cross is divine forgiveness that changes the destination when you die. Don't deal with the sin and the shame on your own. Go to Christ. Humbly. As Peter told that crowd. Except, yeah, I'm guilty. What should I do? Repent. Allow the message of the cross to change your heart. And, and as he said, call out. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. Abuse. You know, some people have suffered different forms of abuse in their life. Sexual abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse. They're made to feel small and less than. Someone is towering over them and doing these things, manipulating. Christ died for both the victim and the victimizer. There is healing for both the victim and the victimizer. Are we hearing what's being said? There is healing in his wings, my friend. There's healing in his wings. In this world that has empty answers, in this world that says, if you set aside religion, don't worry, we'll have more guilt, more things for you to feel guilty for. In this world where oftentimes when you go to a religious system, what do they have for you? More guilt. There's no true forgiveness. At what point is it wiped away when you come to Christ? Believe. Believe. Believe that what he did for you is enough. Believe. Repent. You say, Pastor, we have. Many of, many of you have. You have that testimony. Here's the thing. 
we have an accuser. It's called Satan. He's called the accuser of the brethren. Satan desperately wants you to live under the crushing load of guilt and shame for that which Christ has already forgiven you of. Let me say that again. Satan is a liar. He is the father of lies. He is the accuser of the brethren. And he desperately wants for you to believe the lie that you are not fully forgiven. I know I'm saved, but. I know I'm saved, but. So many Christians live substandard lives of victory and joy. Why? Because though they're truly born again, they have believed a lie that Satan accuses them of. God's forgiven you, but he doesn't like you. No, no. God loves you. God loves you. For God so loved Corey McTagg that he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever, that if Corey McTagg believeth in him, I will be forgiven. I will have a clean slate. That God will not look at me through the eyes of condemnation because he never has. He never has. The only reason he brings up the topic of sin The only reason he brings up the topic of shame, the only reason that he does that is because we are separated from God. It's a law of the universe. There's nothing we can do to change that. We are sinners. God only brings brings up shame and guilt so that he can wipe it away. He doesn't bring it up so that we can feel terrible about ourselves and just to live under that load of sin. Come on now. Every time God brings up sin, he says, yeah, but I can do something about that. I can do something about that. Romans 3, 23 through 27 say, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a, set forth to be a propitiation. I'll talk about that in a moment. Through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Isaiah 50, 50, verse six, let me complete that verse. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Jesus took it. Jesus took it. The sin of that other person that made you feel that way, he took that and he took your shame. He, he took all of that on the cross. He, he paid for all of the sin. Enabling us to experience his forgiveness, friend, and then giving us the power to forgive that other person who may have done us wrong. They don't deserve it. Neither do we. 
neither do we. Are we suggesting that we deserve his forgiveness, but they do not? Well, you don't know what they did. And I'm sure you're right. I don't know. And I probably don't want to know. But he knows. And he died for it. He knows. And he died for it. He can give us the power to forgive. 1 John 2 and 1, please. You have your Bible. First John 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not, meaning he doesn't want us to live in sin as believers in Christ. We've accepted his forgiveness. He doesn't want us to walk that same path anymore. He doesn't want us to make those same choices. Listen, he doesn't want to forgive us of the sin and then for us to continue to walk in sin. We, we, look, Romans 6 says, are, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. He's forgiven you. You've accepted Christ. You've been born again. You've called on his name. He's forgiven you. Walk as children of light. You say, well, I've been saved, but I still feel guilty. How's your walk? How's your relationship with the Lord? Is he telling you to change that behavior? He can give you power to change any habit. He can give you power to change any behavior. Listen, he can give you power to change any thought pattern. There's, listen, there's nothing stronger than the good grace of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you have done that is more powerful than his ability to help you and change you. Man, this is good. Well, I need some Bible on that. Okay, good. Glad you said that. First John 2, he says, I'm writing these things so you don't sin. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ is there in heaven, bodily in heaven. His wounds are visible to the Father. Listen, our suffering, if the guilt, does nothing before God to cleanse us of our guilt. Well, I have to live with this suffering because I'm paying for what I've done. That's not the way it works. Christ's sacrifice is either enough or it's not. Your guilt and suffering does nothing to pay for what you've done. Well, I need more Bible than that. Good. We have an advocate. A lawyer. Someone who, listen, some, we have an accuser of the brethren. Though. Let me tell you about my lawyer. You've got this little pimp squeak. Sometimes we have more reverence for Satan than we do for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't pick on the devil. He'll come get you. Let me tell you who my Savior is. The Lord Jesus Christ died for my sin. He shed his blood for my sin. He rose three days later to prove that nothing can overcome him. He has power over that sin. He has power over that accusation. He has power over that shame. Pastor, don't get that loud. Okay, well then don't make me that excited. Okay. And it says in verse number two, and he, he is. Who is? Jesus is. The, listen, the advocate, Jesus, is, is he just like incredibly good at arguing with God the Father? By the way, God the Father is just the righteous judge. He's not this angry, vindictive, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, he has to do right. There is sin in this world. By the way, uh, I've heard testimonies of this is why some who used to be atheists come to Jesus. Because in, in, the, in, in the worldview 
of, of atheism, what happens to all of the evil in this world? It goes unanswered. Don't, doesn't Hitler have to pay for what he did and not simply by dying a death, but look at all that he did and, and whichever, whichever person that we're talking about, whether the small evil or this astronomical amount of evil. Yes, he has to pay. And not just with physical death. He will stand before the judge of all of the earth. You say, yeah, okay, well, make sure you're not one of those people too. Well, I haven't done what Hitler's done. I, I hope not. I don't think anybody has in this room for sure. But the judge is righteous. There's no favoritism with God. If God righteously has to judge what Hitler does and according to what he did, then he surely has to righteously judge me and what I did, even though by comparison it may be smaller. We wouldn't dare want to go before a judge in the city of Toronto that showed favoritism because of somebody's background or somebody's race or somebody's story, right? Some of you perhaps may have come from countries like that. Or if you have the right last name, then you just kind of, you know, well, whatever. God's not like that. He's the righteous judge. So how can we be forgiven? How can we just be let off? How can, how can our sins just be expunged and wiped away? Because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He himself, what does that mean? It means that he himself is the appeasement. Your, your feelings of guilt does not appease God. <laughs> Glory to his name. I know I'm saved, but... Either the sacrifice of Jesus Christ appeased God or it did not. Come on. What about the shame? Did he, did he bear the shame or did he not? He bore, hey friend, he bore my shame. Sometimes we separate the two. Well, you know, he saved me from my sin and now I'm going to heaven, but it's my responsibility to carry my shame and my guilt. No, he carried the shame and the guilt. You, you tell me one other religion that can claim that and prove it. There, not, not one exists. There is not one that loves. Though we speak of self-love, and though we speak of save yourself, and though we speak of self-help, and though we speak of self this and self that and self this and self that, there is none other religion, there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Why? How? Because he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him because Jesus is who he is and did what he did and died for my sin. And I simply, with my little pinsqueak, tiny little prayer of faith, called on his name. Save me. We don't need to tell stories of mighty sinners. We need to tell the story of the mighty Savior who can look on just a tiny little squeak of a prayer of helplessness and faith. Please say. That's all he needs. Why? Because, because the feelings you prayed when you prayed that prayer have nothing to do with appeasing God. Jesus is what appeases God and his justice. You feeling guilt and shame and feeling the crushing weight of what you did in the past does not appease God. Jesus appeases God. Have you trusted in him? Then fly to him. 
When the accuser comes and tries to remind you of things in the past, you tell him, I'm not stronger than you, but the blood of Jesus Christ certainly is. He washed me. He saved me. Friend, it is time that Christians stood their ground and said, I'm living guilt-free. Again, not in the sense of, well, let's go on and just kind of live however we want to. There, there is a version of Christianity out there that is nowadays that talks about this extreme grace. And you can go out there and you can basically do anything you want because God loves us and it's under grace. Friend, that is wrong. We treat our friend who pays for our lunch better than that. He presented himself the eternal sacrifice for your sin and you're going to treat him like... You're going to go back to the very lifestyle and choices that he died for? That he gave himself for? Listen, all, all we're wanting to do is we're wanting him to take the penalty of sin. You, you die for me so I can go to heaven. But yeah, that sin, that sinful lifestyle after you died for it, I wouldn't mind taking it back and living in that some more. What a disgrace. You're trying to tell me that someone who's been set free from prison wants to walk around the city of Toronto wearing their prison clothes? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're free, man. What are you, what are you wearing? I'm going to take you shopping, my friend. We're, we're going to the mall. You're not wearing that. Hey, you're no, longer in, you're no longer in prison. And there are so many Christians out there Perhaps because they want to fit in. Don't seek to fit in with those who are guilty. Living lives of shame. Still wearing their sin. They've not been clean. Walk as children of light. He's the propitiation for our sin. And not for ours only. Thank God for this verse. But also for the sins of the whole world. You say, well, then why don't more people accept Christ? One, they've never heard. They've never heard. Romans 10 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Romans 10, 14. And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher, not pastor, someone who's just declaring what God's word says? Verse 15, and how should they preach except they be sent? For it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. The gospel, listen, the gospel of peace. Not of guilt. <laughs> not of guilt. Not of shame. Not of going to church and feeling more guilty when you leave than when, hey, the gospel means good news. 
Do not, do not buy this lie that the world is trying to tell us that somehow we need to exit the halls of organized religion, they say, because all they do is make you feel guilty. If that's what you're experiencing, you're going to the wrong church, friend. Amen. That is not good news. Then why don't people accept it? They've never heard. Or, unfortunately, they have heard. And they choose darkness instead. John 3. John 3, 18 and 19 say, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19. Honestly, in my Opinion. This is one of the saddest verses in the Bible, but it also helps me understand the world. Verse 19 says, and this is the condemnation that light, Jesus, the gospel, the cross, the blood, all of that is light. That light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They hear the gospel and turn aside. Why? Because it changes your life, friend. You cannot accept light and walk in darkness. It changes your life. Well, I know somebody, they came to be saved, but it never changed their, according to the scripture. You're trying to say he wore your sin, your shame. You've got nothing inside you that wants to change. That you're, you're greedy and hungry for the dark. The sin. The past, you've never repented. Hey, you've never repented. Repentance is a turning. Repentance is a changing. Repentance, listen, listen. I cannot be both single and married at the same time. Some people try to live that life. It didn't work out well. Hello. I cannot be both lost and saved. I hear the message. I hear of his love. I feel, hey, the light tells me you're guilty. But Jesus took that guilt. And it can be forgiven if you turn to Christ and call on him to save you. And I call on him and all of a sudden, but for the first time, according to Hebrews chapter number nine, my conscience is clear. There's no remission of sins without blood. And he shed his blood to wipe away my sin. My conscience is clear. I no longer have to wear it the guilt and the shame and the sin. He took it. He washed it. I'm free. Listen, so whatever I used to do, I'm free from that. I'm not that person anymore. I'm not that person anymore. I can't break this habit. Are you born again? Yes. You're not that person anymore. Don't believe the lie. That that's who you are and so you gotta and you can't and you want to and you can't. He can help your want to and he can help your gotta. He can change you, friend. But you gotta recognize he took all that sin upon himself and you're washed clean. You're clean. You're free. You're done. You're different. Everybody bow your heads, please, and close your eyes.